Jesus, as we, as we have already sang this morning, who else could we go to but you? You alone have made atonement for our sins. You alone have done all of the work necessary to reconcile us to yourself. And Jesus, that message is for everyone. It is for the entire earth. Because you are remaking all things. And you are doing it through the life of your resurrection. Would you speak through me this morning? Because we need to hear your voice calling us continually to faith in you. To always come back to the story of the gospel. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So um, as we look at this idea, I'm just going to give you a quick idea of where we're going. Uh, We're going to be looking a lot at the language and metaphors that Paul uses in this text to try and help us understand what he's talking about. How is it that we're supposed to live the life of a Christian? And how does the gospel uh, work itself into that? And so we're going to look at the object of faith, the journey of faith, and the results of faith. But before we jump right into that, I wanted to give you guys uh, a little peek behind the curtain of sermon preparation. So when you're, uh, they teach you when you're preparing a sermon, or or any time really that you're going to give a presentation to people, what's the number one thing? Know your audience, right? You always need to know who you're talking to. You want to be able to say things in words that they'll understand and give them ideas and analogies that they'll understand. And so as, as I and Brian, as we both kind of think of illustrations that are going to help capture the point, we want it to be intelligible, right? So as I was thinking about this passage, I was initially thinking of using this film as an illustration that was a super highly intellectual, kind of an art house film uh, called Men in Black. But I figured that would be a little too, you know, above where we're all at. So I brought it down to The Matrix, You guys remember The Matrix? Remember how cool it seemed before it came out? And then they came out with three of them, and everyone, all of us were like, yeah, it's really, it's not that great. However, we're going to use it anyway. In the first Matrix, when we're all wondering, what is The Matrix, right? Remember that question? Remember the trailer of the movie? There was no scene from the entire movie. It just said, what is The Matrix? And as the movie begins, we're introduced to this character named Neo, and he's kind of a, a computer hacker guy, right? And his, his life is kind of becoming consumed with this question. What is the matrix? He's starting to realize there's something not quite right with the world as I see it. There's got to be something more. And at one point in the movie, he has this experience. So he meets this girl named Trinity who comes down and does all these kung fu moves, and she's doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And he gets into this car, and they're taking him to meet this guy, and all these you know, bad guys come out of nowhere. And they end up, like, pulling this tracking device out of Neo. You guys remember that horribly disgusting scene? Like, they pull it out of him, and it's this robotic tracking device. And in that moment, Neo realizes all these stories that Trinity's been telling him might actually be real, right? He didn't know that he had a tracking device running around in him. And so he has this experience, and he starts to think about it. And as he goes and he meets Morpheus, the kind of the head rebellion guy, and Morpheus offers him a chance to experience real life real life. Neo thinks back to that event, and he realizes that he already knows that his life is not all there is. And so he makes the choice. He takes the red pill, and then all, you know, the other two movies come along, and it's terrible, right? So we'll end it there. But it's the experience. An event happened in his life, in time and space, in history, and it changed the course of his life forever. 
what Paul is telling the Colossian people here is that they have been taught specific things regarding the gospel. He tells them to be rooted and established in the faith as they were taught. And though he doesn't unpack for us in in this text exactly what it was that they were taught about the faith, we see hints of it in our text, and it's really made more explicit throughout the letter and throughout all of Paul's writings. And it's very explicit in the recorded sermons of the apostles in Acts. See, the apostles had witnessed an event. They had had an experience that changed them forever. At the core, it reoriented the path of their life dramatically. Paul also had an experience that changed his life. It was, it was later than the other apostles. It was slightly different than the other apostles, but he was still counted as an apostle because of a similar event. And those, those disciples that had walked with Jesus, they had heard his teaching. They had watched him go to the cross. The event that changed them forever was his resurrection. Here's a man who claimed to be God. He goes to the cross and dies, and they think that it's all over, and then he rises from the dead. Suddenly, everything he ever told them becomes hugely, hugely important. Paul had an experience on the road to Damascus. He heard the voice of Jesus himself. He was blinded by the light of his glory, and he experienced a resurrected Christ. And so then he goes out into the entire world preaching the gospel relentlessly. And the gospel that he took to the Gentiles was that the God who created everything was the covenant Lord of Israel. There was one God who had made the entire universe, and he made promises to a man named Abraham. He promised that this man's descendant would one day come and right everything that was wrong in the world. And Paul realizes that this man, this descendant that was promised, was Jesus Christ. And the proof that Jesus was the God-man, the one that had been promised for all of history, was that he had died and resurrected. He had been raised to new life. It is his death and resurrection that allows the creation which had existed in death and rebellion to experience life and reconciliation with its creation or its creator. And Paul realizes that this is a message for all people. So Paul's telling this church that they received Christ Jesus the Lord. And just in that little phrase, we get all sorts of clues as to the content of their faith. Paul's telling them something very specific about the person that they have placed their faith in. Christ. It's a Greek word that that, uh, the Greeks use to translate Messiah, which is a Hebrew word meaning the anointed one. Jesus had been promised long ago as the Messiah, one who would come and right everything. He was the descendant of Abraham that was going to come and be filled with the Spirit of God and bring life to all of creation. Jesus is a Greek form of the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. The Lord is salvation, or the salvation of the Lord. And even when when Paul refers to Jesus as the Lord, we we think that that's fairly straightforward. Like we, We understand that Paul's talking about Jesus as his master. And yet it's even more than that because the ancient Hebrew writers would use their word for Lord as kind of a gloss for the covenant name of God, his personal name that he had given to Moses. And so in the New Testament, we see the New Testament writers actually ascribing that same term to Jesus. So Paul is telling these people, he's the salvation of the Lord. Jesus is the salvation of the Lord. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was promised from long ago, and he is God himself. 
that's who you've placed your faith in. He's not just any God, though. He is a God who has come near in human flesh and taken on human suffering. And he's vindicated his own claims of being God by rising from the dead. This makes his claim universal. Jesus didn't just claim to be the covenant-making God of Israel. He claimed to be the Lord of the entire universe. And so when he raises from the dead, that's a vindication of his claim. I mean, can you imagine? Someone tells you something that seems so outlandish, and then you see him with your own eyes die. And three days later, he's up walking around again. Everybody's going to have to pop up their head at that point and make a decision. You're either going to believe it or you're going to deny it. And if you believe it, your life is going to be radically, radically changed. Jesus is the Lord of everything. And in his resurrection, he began his reign over the entire earth. Now, the Colossians had never physically met Jesus. They hadn't even had an experience like Paul, most likely. They had never had the blinding light and the voice coming down out of heaven. But they accepted the message of the gospel on faith. So here comes Epaphras, an early evangelist, riding into town. He comes into Colossae and he tells the people, there is a God over all things. And you have rebelled against him. His entire creation has rebelled against him. And this God has fixed a judgment day. It is coming. He is going to right all of the wrongs. And yet Epaphras was so undone that this very same God who was coming to judge his rebellious creation actually came and took on human flesh and suffered death and then rose again. He was resurrected. And so Epaphras can't contain himself. He comes into Colossae and preaches this message. And he says that that resurrection of Christ was just an initial explosion that was going to allow life to take over all of creation, including all who would believe. So as the people of Colossae are faced with their sinfulness before their creator, holy God. They are overcome by their helplessness before him. In times past, they had probably lived in ignorance of this God, and yet now they had come face to face with his claim on their lives. And so their reaction is a reaction of faith. And the reaction of faith is to simply cry out, yes, 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 to Jesus. That's faith. They simply clung to this strange, holy, gentle king. When my wife, Lindsay, was uh, just a small girl, uh, her and her family took a vacation to the beach. And as they were playing kind of along uh, the waterline in the ocean, um, a, a huge sneaker wave came and basically just crushed. Everyone in the waterline just fell immediately to the ground, and there was this huge undertow ripping back really quickly. And so as Lindsay's parents tell the story, they say uh, if her dad hadn't been holding her at the time, she probably would have just goodbye, like out to sea. Very, I mean, pretty realistically scary. And um, there's nothing really sophisticated about how she survived that. She just clung, clung to her father. There's nothing sophisticated or, or picturesque about a screaming, frightened, crying little girl clinging to her father. That's just simple, simple faith. Most of us, though, don't have simple faith. And whether you're Christian or not, you you have a faith in something. Whether it's your wealth, 
or your, your ability to make people laugh, or your business acumen, or your good looks, whatever it is that you think gives you vindication, that actually gives you a reason to live, that's sort of what you're placing all of your eggs in, right? In that basket. Sometimes those things are going to probably shift. They're going to go away. And then your faith has to move into something else. When you become a Christian, the the most simple way to put it is, is you take your faith, and instead of putting it in something that you can accomplish, you put it in Jesus. The thing that's worrisome to me, though, is that for a lot of us that have, especially those of us that have been Christians for a long time, that have grown up in the church, is that we, we end up turning our simple faith into some sort of sophisticated faith machine. And so instead of just clinging, we, we kind of build this baby carrier. There's a lot of parents here. I'm sure you all have different views on what kind of baby carriers are the best. Uh, I'm not going to describe an ergonomic one. I'm going to describe a fancy one, Okay. So a lot of us will try to add moral components to our faith. There's a list of things that that we have to do in order to kind of remain really with it in this Christian life. Those moral components end up acting like like straps or buckles or clips that we think are going to keep us safe in the baby carrier. But the second that we fail at any one of our moral codes, the buckle breaks. The belt tears away, and we're left adrift. Some of us, though, uh, we don't have a moral sophistication. We have a mental sophistication to our faith. And so we think that if our faith is going to remain secure, we have to have the exact right answer to really specific questions like, what is justification? What do you think about women in ministry? What do you think about creation? What do you think about end times? And the longer that we stay inculcated in kind of a a churchy, theologically driven community, we start to think that those are the things that are keeping us safe in the baby carrier. And the second that anyone destroys one one of those ideas, one of those questions, one of our viewpoints, we're left adrift. And we no longer know where our faith is found. There is a subtle but massive difference between placing your faith in a set of beliefs and placing your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And many of us, without realizing it, have based our faith in our ability to reason out Christian doctrine, to think through things theologically. It's not that creeds or theology are harmful. They're actually very, very good. But think of it this way. We recite creeds here every week, right? So obviously we think they're a good thing. But here's how we should think of them. Creeds are like accounting books. God is like the actual money. Catch that? The creeds that we recite are reflections of the faith that we hold in God, not in the creed itself. Peter Kreeft reminds us that faith is more active than reason. Faith runs ahead of reason. Reason reports like a camera. Faith takes a stand like an army. Faith is saying yes to God's marriage proposal. Faith is extremely simple. Saying anything more would probably confuse it. Most of what is written about faith is needlessly complex. The word yes is the simplest word there is. See, as Lindsay got knocked down by that wave 
she probably clamped down so hard on her dad's arms that she left nail marks in his forearms, right? But as she got old enough to understand what happened, do you think that she made the mistake of thinking that it was her ability to cling that saved her? It was her dad holding on to her. That's how she survived when the waves came crashing over. And as the waves of life come crashing over you, what are you putting your faith in? Is your need to look with it and sophisticated driving you to place your faith in your own widgets, your own doodads, your own moral performance or theological prowess? Or are you going to be okay looking like a goofy, screaming, scared baby clinging to the arms of Jesus as he clings to you? The way that we answer that question is going to affect our entire life, whether we're Christian or not, because life is really a journey of faith. There are so many things that we just accept that we cannot prove. And so we have to tease this out. Life is a search for meaning. And if we don't know if our faith is in Jesus or something else, we're going to be tossed adrift. Throughout the scripture, there is imagery of journeying or walking with God. We get this all the way back in Genesis when God creates this world and he makes this garden and he puts humankind in that garden. He walks with them. Every day. He would come and walk and they would talk together. Later on in the Old Testament, we see saints like Enoch and Noah walking with God. When God calls Abraham and tells him that he's going to set him apart, he actually calls Abraham to walk with him. Later on, Abraham's family, the nation of Israel, gets called up out of Egypt and God says, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to walk with you. And he does. He walks with them through the wilderness. In the New Testament, there is a huge component of Jesus' ministry within his disciple clan of journeying. They journeyed almost constantly, walking together, talking together, and building a relationship. And in fact, the journey was such a huge part of the early church that the earliest Christian converts were called followers of the way. And so as you study this image of walking or journeying in Scripture, you realize that there's a relational aspect, and there's a directional aspect. God's people are called to walk in a certain direction, in his path of peace, in his path of righteousness. However, the idea of walking with God as a metaphor for living a life of virtue is based on an already experienced fact of walking with God relationally. God comes along and walks with you as your friend, and that's when you begin your walk in him according to his statutes, according to his word. So here Paul is telling the Colossians to continue walking. Continue walking in the same manner in which they received Christ to begin with, which is what? Through faith. So if we make our faith simple, or if we make our faith sophisticated, it's going to affect how we live out the Christian life. Now part of the reason that Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians is that they were surrounded by a culture that did not really enjoy their Christian beliefs. They didn't enjoy a gospel that said, one, Jesus was the true Caesar, or two, that you could accept him on faith, and that was all you needed to do. There was a group of people that eventually became known as the Gnostics, and they held that in order to be truly saved, in whatever sense that they meant it, you had to have insider information. You had to kind of know the code. 
right? It was sort of like a frat house. You had to have the, the handshakes and the signals. You had to speak the right words. You had to follow certain rules. The whole goal was to get to the inner circle. That's salvation, is getting to that inside of the religion. But what Paul is telling them and what he's telling us is that that sort of thinking has nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity. It's not that there aren't things to be learned. It's not that there aren't expectations placed on God's people. The rest of this letter goes through all of those. What Paul is trying to get at is it's how we go about the Christian life that is so utterly different than what our culture and even our own instincts would naturally tell us. Jesus does not offer us a turnkey religion. And yet so often we think of him as kind of a landlord, right? So we come in and we, we, we find the house, right? We, we understand that, that this neighborhood over here, the, the, our old life, right, is not that great. We see this beautiful house. We want in. We know that Jesus is the landlord. So what do we do? We've got to go sign some papers with him. He comes in, gives us the key, lets us in the front door. And then what? Then we're on our own, right? Because we've signed the lease. He's just the landlord. And so we get to walk about the house. We get to kind of figure out what we want to do. And uh, we're in charge of keeping it clean, right? We can't really screw it up. If we, if we do something super bad, then we're kind of afraid maybe the landlord will kick us out, right? If we break the, the breach or if we breach the contract or whatever. But if we're a good tenant and if we keep our noses clean, then we don't really need them. Occasionally, occasionally the toilet will break, right? That's going to happen. There's going to be a plumbing mishap and you're going to have to call landlord Jesus in to fix things up. But in terms of daily living, he's completely unnecessary. You pay your rent, you don't break anything, and you pretty much do whatever you want. That's not the gospel. It's not anything close to the gospel. The gospel is Jesus taking up residence in our lives because the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just give us a key to enter into some new part of life where we remain at the center calling the shots. No, the resurrection of Jesus is the very source of our life. Paul tells us that our walk, our faith journey, is in Christ. We've been incorporated into him already. And as soon as he tells us to walk in him, he starts mixing all sorts of metaphors that we're going to look at. But the first thing is that we walk in him, which is a throwback to all those scriptures that we just talked about, about walking with God. However, now it's not walking with God. It's walking in God. Your life is wrapped up in his life. You're incorporated in. Next, Paul tells us that we are rooted in him. This is something that has already taken place. It's a reality that's already been enacted. And again, this is very scriptural imagery. Think of the psalmist saying that the people of God are like trees planted by water, by streams of water. Think of the prophets, one of which we read this morning, referring to the coming Messiah as a stump of Jesse, the root of David, and he's going to come and bring people into his kingdom and bear fruit through them. Think of Jesus' words in John 15 that we also read this morning, that he is the vine and we are the branches. If you are in Christ, you are a branch organically rooted to that vine. This is, this is agricultural imagery. And even though we don't really live in an agrarian society here in Portland, we can still get it. None of us have ever seen branches or twigs lying around growing apples on them. They have to be connected to the tree. 
No branches are able to bear fruit if they are not organically connected to the root. It is the life of the root, the life of the root that flows through the branches to bear fruit. It is the life of Jesus in you. If you have placed your faith in him, you are already rooted. It has already happened, and his life is flowing through you. If you're a Christian, then the way that you received Christ, when you became convinced that you were in a state of death and rebellion against your Creator, and you also became convinced that your Creator came into this world as a man, died and resurrected for you, then your reaction in that moment to be a clinging, crying child saying yes to Jesus. That's it. That's how you live your life. You're rooted. You're connected. As you're connected, as you continue in your faith, continuing to say yes to Jesus over and over, Paul uses another metaphor and tells us that we are being built up. This is something that is continuing to happen. It's ongoing. And again, this imagery is used throughout Scripture. God has talked about as being a builder of his people throughout the Old Testament. Often he's described as building a, a wall of peace and security around his people. As we get to the New Testament, that same imagery continues, and we're told that the church is the house of God that he is building. Christians are commanded to build one another, build one another up. In Hebrews, we're told that, that God is building a heavenly city that will one day join earth. God is a builder. This is his work that is ongoing in the world. Jesus himself used the imagery of building in his Sermon on the Mount. So if, if you've ever read through the Sermon on the Mount um, and you've walked away feeling like, I can handle that. That's, that's pretty right up my alley. Uh, which I've done. I did that in high school. I felt like, yeah, all right, I get it. I can do that. Uh, that, was, that was a horrible, horrible mistake. If, if you've not read the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus basically reiterates the old law, the old Jewish law. And instead of abolishing that law, he tells people that your righteousness must actually exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, the guys who had added exponentially to the law and lived it out. Your righteousness has to exceed that of the Pharisees. And, and the list of moral requirements that Jesus lays out in the Sermon on the Mount are insurmountable. He says, okay, you haven't committed adultery? Great. Have you lusted recently? Because you've committed adultery. Okay, so you haven't murdered anyone this week, but have you gotten angry? Because you basically murdered someone. Insurmountable. What he's doing is he's telling us you cannot do this alone, and at the very end of all of that sermon, he tells people that if we don't put his message into practice, it's like we're building a house on sand. But those who put his words into practice, it's like building a house on the rocks. What are we to make of this? How are we supposed to be that righteous? The Pharisees had rules for everything, and yet we're supposed to be more righteous than that? Jesus tells us that even, even at the end of all things, there are going to be some people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all of these miraculous works in your name. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. So what's the difference? 
between a house on sand and a house on rocks. And the key is this. The righteousness of the Pharisees is a house built on sand because it is righteousness of their own doing. Eventually, it will fail. But those that have been incorporated into Christ have his righteousness. They have a righteousness outside of their own, a righteousness that surpasses all of the rule following of the Pharisees. And Christ is the foundation of the house. He is the rock upon which his people are being built up. Paul is saying, if you believe, you're already rooted in him. He is the foundation upon which you are being built. So just continue walking in him in faith. What is the result of that kind of faith? You remember the question that I, that I threw out to all of us earlier? What kind of faith are we going to have? Simple or sophisticated? Where are we placing our faith? Is it in Jesus? Or is it in some construction of our own making? And if you've been a Christian for a while, then it's so easy to, without even thinking, just flippantly say, of course my faith is in Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches me. That's what I accepted. Of course that's where it is. And even if you can say that, you might still think of Jesus as some uninvolved landlord. So you're probably asking yourselves, well, great, thanks, Steve. So now what am I, I'm not supposed to be sure of anything. Maybe I do have faith, but maybe it's not the right kind of faith. Well, here's, here's uh, just sort of a clue for all of us to think through. If, if you're wondering, if you think of Jesus primarily as a landlord who just gets you in and then kind of lets you do your thing but can be avoided, here's, here's something to consider. If you're living the Christian life and you're consistently taking pride in your own accomplishments, your own Christian accomplishments, or if, if you live in anger at people who don't live up to your moral code, or perhaps if you failed your own moral code, you're living in despair of your own self, then odds are you've got a landlord Jesus. But that's a perception. That's not reality. The reality is something completely different, and we just have to change our expectations. We have to change our perception. So if you rented a new apartment and your landlord signs off on it, gives you the key, and then the next morning he shows up with a truckload of all of his stuff, and he's getting ready to move in, you would be, what, completely weirded out and on the way out the back door, right? You didn't sign up for a roommate. You signed up for a place to live. That's the perception. That's the expectation. In the Christian life, Jesus is moving in. His entire life is your life. And so the reality is, is that we all need a resurrected Jesus. And that's the solution we've been given. We've been given a resurrected Jesus who offers us his resurrected life to be our life. We all need Jesus as our life-giving root every step of the journey of faith. And guess what happens? Guess what happens as we begin to say yes to him over and over as we take our trust of him deeper and deeper into our lives. Paul tells us right here in this verse, we overflow with thanksgiving. We are so filled up with gratitude at the life that has been given us. We overflow with thanksgiving and it begins to change our entire life. That's not to say that life gets completely happy and perfect. This isn't Pleasantville. The life and love of Jesus doesn't sweep 
our disappointments under the rug and pretend they don't exist. No, it, it heals them. The life of Jesus transforms those hurts, those wounds, those disappointments because he is the bedrock of our lives. He is the root of our lives. He is our life. And when we consider the death that once ruled our existence and we embrace the life that Jesus offers us, we abound with thanksgiving. We are overcome and undone by this gentle king. This is what it means that the gospel is for everyone. We just continue to live the life of faith, a simple faith that clings to Jesus. Some of you might be saying, that sounds great, but can you just give me just a quick takeaway, right? Just give me something to do. I want to do something, all right? I'll do it. I'll buy it. I'll give you something to do. So a, uh, a, a Amazon search of the terms... Uh, Christian self-help brings up over 9,000 hits. Over 9,000 different Christian self-help books. Now, let's just assume, for my math skills' sake, that 20% of those books include some sort of 10 steps, right? 10 steps to a healthier marriage, 10 steps to being a nicer parent, 10 steps to being a better little league coach and, you know, influencing your community. So, uh, I'm not a mathematician, but I'm told that 20% of, of 9,000 times 10 is something like 18,000 steps. 18,000 steps for you to do. So I printed all those out and put them in the back. No, not really. 18,000. Now, if you're not, a, that's just Christian self-help. If you're not a Christian, there's probably at least another 18,000 steps that you could do for a better life. But here's what I'm going to ask uh, of you and of me. Two steps. Two things. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. Two things. Repent and believe. If you're not a Christian, if if you've never really heard or really understood this gospel story of human rebellion that is overcome by a historical resurrection, then I invite you to repent and believe. Turn away from your self-sufficiency. Turn away from your selfishness, from your autonomy, and just rest in the arms of Jesus. Say yes to him. Believe. Trust in him. If you are a Christian, and you've been a Christian for two months or 40 years, it's the exact same response. Repent and believe. Stop holding on to your mental theological gymnastics as if that's what's keeping you afloat. Stop building your life on moral performance as if that is what will keep you rooted. Turn away from your self-sufficiency. Turn away from your self-centeredness. Turn away from your autonomy and trust Jesus. Just like you did in the very beginning, so now walk in him, rooted in him, being built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, overflowing with thanksgiving. When the waves of life come crashing down upon you, driving you to the ground, threatening to sweep you out to sea, cling to him. And I promise you, I promise you, he will cling to you and he will never let you go. Let's pray.
Jesus, the gospel of your life being given to us is for everyone. I ask that you would root it deeply in our hearts. If, if we have already said yes to you and already felt your embrace, would you continue to root your gospel deeply in us? May this be a church that proclaims that gospel every week. May we be a people who tell that gospel story to ourselves every day. And Jesus, for those that have not yet experienced it, may we take this story overflowing with thankfulness for what you have done for us and bring it into their lives. Embrace them in our embrace. And may we be a people that are shaped and rooted and living out the gospel. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.